All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God as we worship the Lord together. And if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you again to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And let's go to the Lord together in prayer again in the name of Jesus and let's ask for God's help this morning. Father, we come to worship today. We come to worship you. Lord, we amen our brother's exhortation earlier. God, we come to bow at your feet. We come to kiss the sun. We come to proclaim your worth, that you are the worthy one, and there is no other. And Lord, we come to boast in Christ today. We come to honor the risen Jesus, to lift up the finished work of Christ. We are your church. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would reign over us today. And so, Lord, we want to come with faith and we want to come with submission. Lord, we want to come under your word and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reign over us as our king by your word, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would give us the heart of a disciple to submit to your teaching, to learn your teaching, to love your teaching, and to be doers of your word. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word this morning, that you would shape our minds with your truth, and that you would encourage our souls with gospel doctrine. Be exalted, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, let's turn to Romans 6 this morning. And our text is going to be Romans 6, verse 15, through Romans 7, verse 6. And as we say often, these are the most important words that you're going to hear in the next hour, these are the God-breathed words from heaven, the words of Holy Scripture. And so let's read them with reverence and faith this morning. This is God's Word. What then? Are we, to content, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are the slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law 
and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. <coughs> Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from that law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now we are continuing in Romans 6, and we see this morning that Paul begins in our passage in verse 15 with a very similar question of how we began last week in chapter 6, verse 1. And that question is dealing with whether a justified Christian who is justified freely by the grace of God can continue living in sin. In other words, in both verse 1 and verse 15, Paul is dealing with the false implication of the Christian gospel that would go something like this. Oh, you Christians, y'all believe that you can be justified apart from any works. And we say, yes, that's exactly what we believe, justified by faith alone, apart from works of law. Oh, so you Christians, y'all believe that you can just live any way you want to. And this is the exact objection that Paul is dealing with twice now in Romans 6. We called it last week the antinomian objection. And one, one new thing that I want you to note is in verse 15, Paul brings the law, what was in view earlier in chapter 6 is sin, but in our passage this morning, Paul brings the law of God more specifically to the, the forefront when he says this in verse 15, are we to continue to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Is that what we're supposed to do? We're not under the law anymore? Now, note that what provokes that rhetorical question is where we left off last week where Paul proclaims the good news for every Christian that you are no longer, verse 14, under the law, you are under grace. And so our passage is really unpacking what Paul means that a Christian is no longer under the law. In fact, most of the passage is, is unpacking what Paul does not mean by that phrase. And so what we have here is a wrong assumption that Paul is dealing with. That Paul, if you're saying that a Christian is no longer under the law then you're saying that they're lawless. They don't have standards to obey. They don't have commandments to keep. And Paul rejects this conclusion in verse 15 with the same phrase we saw last week in verse 1, by no means, the strongest words available to him, he categorically rejects that way of thinking. God forbid, by no means do I mean that a Christian can continue to live in sin. And to show how wrong this conclusion would be, Paul provides us in our passage with two descriptions of Christian conversion. Okay? In chapter 6, he gives us the description of changing an exchange of slavery, an exchange of masters, so to speak. That's what happens when someone truly comes to Christ. They, they exchange one master for another and you get into this slavery metaphor in chapter 6. And then the second illustration is, is likewise when someone truly comes to Christ, not only do they exchange their masters, Paul says in chapter 7 they also exchange their spouses, which is why you get this marriage metaphor in chapter 7. And so here's the logic of the passage before we dig into the details. If you understand Rightly, you will understand rightly what Paul means in verse 14. Christians are not under the law when you understand these illustrations that Paul gives. The ones who are not under the law have exchanged one master for another. 
the ones who are not under the law have exchanged one spouse for another. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that to become a real Christian, to be truly converted to Christ, means that you are a slave of God, chapter 6, and married to Jesus Christ, chapter 7. Now remember last week when we talked about uh, this relationship in Paul's letters between the indicative and the imperative, what God has done, and it's done for every Christian, and what we must do in response to keep the commands of God. I want to remind you on the front end that these illustrations are gospel indicatives. They remind us what is true for every Christian. Every Christian has been made a slave of God, and every Christian has been married, joined to Jesus Christ. And so let's begin with this first illustration this morning. Paul describes in chapter 6 true conversion as exchanging one form of slavery, slavery to sin, for another form of slavery, slavery to God. And in order to really understand this illustration, there's a principle that we need to spend some time on in verse 16. Understand this principle, you understand the mind of God and the mind of Paul in this passage. And we could summarize first verse 16 with this phrase. Paul says in verse 16, uh, in summary fashion, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey. That's the principle that is being laid out for us this morning in God's word. When you obey a master, you are that master's slave. That's the principle. And then in verse 16, this is one of the many places in God's word where all of humanity is gathered up, not into five groups, ten groups, fifteen groups, twenty groups, but two groups. It's another way the Bible does this. Just like you're in Adam, you're in Christ... Paul gathers up all humanity as either a slave of sin on the one hand or a slave of obedience on the other. And so that's the principle that we're unpacking this morning. You're, the, you're a slave of the one to whom you obey and your only two choices are you are a slave to sin on the one hand or you are a slave to obedience on the other. Now, I want to I point out two things about that principle, and I want us to learn these things well. Number one, I want you to notice that, it, that in this illustration, that it is impossible, okay, in, in the mind of Paul, in the mind of God, it is impossible for you or any other human being to have two masters, okay? Notice the illustration. There are two forms of slavery that are mentioned here, but they're diametrically opposed to one another. In other words, there's no human being, including you, including me, who has one foot in one form of slavery and the other foot in the other form of slavery. No human being is straddling the line here. Nobody is riding the fence. You are either a slave of sin or you are a slave of obedience. And this is the principle, by the way, that the Apostle Paul learned from Jesus himself. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 26, this phrase, no man can serve two masters. You don't have two masters. Nobody in the entire universe has two masters. You have one master. And in this illustration, it's either you are a slave of sin or you are a slave of obedience. That's the first thing I want you to notice. It is impossible to have two masters. Neutrality is impossible here. Straddling the line is impossible here. The second thing I want, I want you to notice is that it is also impossible to be truly autonomous as a human being. It's impossible in verse 16, Paul envisions every human being as in service to a master. Why is this important? Why is that important for us to grasp? Well, one of the refrains that we hear over and over again throughout human history, 
and it'll always be this way until the very end comes, is the refrain of humanism. Summarized well in the, in the famous poem Invictus with this line, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. How many times and in how many ways have we seen that anthem reappear in human history? Rebellious man, unregenerate man says, I am my own king. I am my own master. I don't serve other masters. I am my own king. That's the cry of autonomy. But I want you to notice in verse 16 and following that Paul says that people who really believe that and people who really live like that, they're not actually serving themselves. Ultimately, they are serving king sin like an obedient slaves. They are captive to king sin. They are in slavery to sin. And they are presenting themselves to sin as obedient slaves. And so one of the most fundamental things that you need to learn about yourself and your anthropology and how you think about human beings all throughout the created world is that you are going to serve somebody. Everybody is going to serve somebody. This principle is inescapable. Everyone in every corner of the creation will have a master. You will have a king and you will serve somebody. Romans 6 pictures us as, as Christians pictures every Christian as once being in this old form of captivity to king sin. And the gospel is the announcement that only Jesus can rescue us from that old condition. And this is what Paul thanks God for in verse 17. So we have the illustration before us, and then Paul says, but thanks be to God. In verse 17, in other words, that's who we once were apart from Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God, God has intervened into our circumstances and into this situation of slavery to sin. And then notice this. Notice that when God rescues us, and this is really important for Paul's argument in Romans 6. When we're rescued out of that old form of slavery, God does not rescue us into a condition of lawlessness, no commandments to keep. Neither does God rescue us into a condition of autonomy, no master to serve. Old master gone, no master to serve. That's not the argument. He shows us that God rescues us from the old condition, not into autonomy, but into an exchange and we get a new master to serve. And so he says this in verse 17, but thanks be to God, you became obedient. Notice what he doesn't say. Thanks be to God, you became disobedient. Notice what he's doing here. Thanks be to God, you became obedient from the heart. He's calling Christians to remember their conversion. That phrase is a description of the obedience of our conversion. It describes the moment where we came and we bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, where we swore allegiance by faith to our new king. In other words, it wasn't this, what we hear so often around us, pray the prayer and nothing in your life changes. Paul calls Christians, remember when you came, became obedient. And not this little external thing. Remember when you became obedient from the heart, brothers and sisters. Paul refers to this obedience in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 16, really like bookends, as the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, the obedience that is produced by the gospel, the obedience that is produced by true faith in Christ. Thanks be to God, Paul says, you became obedient from the heart. And notice in verse 17 that, that Paul says, we became obedient to a standard of teaching. And again, this is really important. Okay, verse 14, you're not under the law, 
the wrong conclusion, we don't have any law. We don't have any commandments to keep anymore. But he comes back in verse 17 and says, no, no. Rest, not being under the law doesn't mean that you are left without standards as a Christian because verse 17 tells us that we became obedient to a standard of teaching. That not only is Jesus our king, he rules us by standards, by his teaching, by his doctrine. He tells us what to believe. He tells us how to live and Christians became obedient to him from the heart. And so Christians have doctrinal standards. Christians have moral standards. You can't read the New Testament and conclude otherwise. There are things that we should believe and things that we should reject as false doctrine. There are ways that we should live and there are ways that we should put to death as followers of Christ. True conversion, according to verse 17, always shows itself in obedience. Where else have we heard this in God's word? Well, one other place would be 1 John. John gives us test of life in that epistle and one of those tests we could call the obedience test and here's what John says in 1 John chapter 3 verse 10 he says by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God there's a difference there's a difference in a superficial faith in Jesus Christ and a real God-wrought faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we tell the difference is one, real faith produces obedience. It's the fruit of genuine faith. And so I want you to imagine Paul, and he's, and he's, and he's uh, in this rhetorical argument, he's responding to antinomians, he's responding to legalists. And I want you to imagine, as we're unpacking what Paul says here, I want you to imagine the legalist says, yep, told you, we're saying the same thing. Paul, you're calling people to obey, we're calling people to obey, you're saying the same thing. And Paul would respond, we're absolutely not saying the same thing. We're absolutely not saying the same thing. Justification is by faith alone apart from works of law. But that faith produces an obedience. It produces a God-wrought obedience. And so I want you to notice the way that Paul says this in verse 17. Paul gives thanks to God for this new obedience. What does that tell us? It tells us that this new obedience, the obedience of the heart, is not a human achievement, but a divine act. It's not an autonomous act of your will that one day you just had enough of sin and you made a really good decision and you became obedient from the heart. Paul says, no, God did this in your life. God made you new. That new obedience that every Christian is called to remember, he's given thanks to God. This is a gift of grace. God is the one who has made us obedient from the heart. Now, even acknowledging that God, thank you for this, reminds us that we were unable to change our previous condition. And we mentioned this some last week. In King Sin's prison, there's nobody strong enough to break themselves out. We are being mastered, overruled by a superior power. The prophet Jeremiah says it like this. Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Think about that this morning. God's word says that you are no more able to morally reform yourself than an Ethiopian is able to change his skin or a leopard is able to change his spots. Translation, you are unable to do that. You are unable to morally reform yourself. And the, and the logic is this. If we can't change ourselves... What's our only hope? If we are disobedient, what's our only hope of becoming obedient? And Paul's answer here is divine grace. Thanks 
be to God, you became obedient from the heart. And so what we have in verse 17 is another gospel indicative. This is done. This is what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. True for every Christian. Best part, true on your worst day as a Christian. It's not bad day, good day Christianity. Good day, oh man, I have a new heart. Bad day, oh man, I don't have a new heart. That's not how the indicatives work. The duns are true every day for every person in Christ. God has brought about a new heart of obedience. Therefore, we are now slaves of God. Verse 22. By grace, every Christian has exchanged slavery to the old master, King Sin, for a new slavery to a new master, King Jesus. Now, there are a lot of things that would be inappropriate for us to conclude uh, from this slavery metaphor. In fact, later in, uh, in Romans 8, Paul says we didn't uh, receive a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery. In other words, there's a bad kind of slavery. We're not supposed to think we're those, that kind of in slavery to God. Uh, but this is describing a good slavery. Um, and w- so what does the metaphor teach us here? Three things. It teaches us how exclusive our service to God is. We have one king. We have one master. His name is Jesus. We don't have two kings. We don't have ten kings. Jesus is our king. We are slaves of God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, it, t- it teaches us about the permanence of our being yoked to Jesus. We're not on a temporary work contract that we don't know how this thing is going to end. We are slaves to him. We belong to him. We are his precious possession in this world. That's how Peter describes Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are his possession now in this world, and we are his possession throughout all of eternity. We are in a permanent bond to our Lord Jesus. And then third... This metaphor describes the depth of our allegiance to him. In other words, there are limits to the authority of every earthly ruler. And I hope you know that. I mean, there are lines that earthly rulers can cross and tell you to do something that you are duty-bound as a Christian to disobey them. We have to obey God rather than man. But I want you to understand that Jesus' authority over us is absolutely limitless. And this imagery of we are slaves to God through Jesus Christ, it shows us how deep our allegiance to him runs. This is why later in chapter 12, Paul exhorts Christians to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, we don't give God just a little bit of who we are. We give him everything. We owe everything to our new king. Nothing held back. He owns us and all that we have, and we withhold nothing from him. And so this is describing in Romans 6 a good slavery, not a slavery distorted by human sin. Lots of examples of that. A good slavery. You could say it this way. Christians are happy slaves of Jesus Christ. Nobody is a slave of Christ who hates Jesus. This is not, you know, uh, a resisting arrest. Like, man, I really don't want to be under Jesus' rule, but I'm forced to be under Jesus' rule anyway. Christians are happy slaves of Jesus Christ. Why? Because our master is kind. Our master loves us. Romans chapter 5, Paul just told us that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Nobody has ever loved us like our Lord Jesus. Matthew 11 tells us that our master has a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And our deepest joy as human beings, is found in our obedience to our Creator. This is what we were made for. Every single one of us, we were made to know God, love God, 
worship God, and serve God. And as we do those things, we fulfill the end for which we were created. This is what life is meant to be. This is what it's meant to be as an image bearer of God in God's world is serving Him with all of our hearts. Now in verse 19, we see Paul turn that corner that we mentioned last week, the corner of the indicative to the imperative. He's been announcing what God has freely done for every Christian, but then in verse 19, he begins to call us to respond to the gospel and he does it with this phrase just as so now just as in other words he points backwards to something that was true in our old state just as that so now carry something forward into the new state and the argument here in verse 19 is just as single-mindedly as you once pursued sin as an obedient slave to sin. Just as so now we are to pursue God and his righteousness with that same single-mindedness. Just as you once served sin, so now, Paul says, serve righteousness. Serve your new king. And I want you to also notice in verse 19 the progressive nature of these two forms of slavery. The old condition, he says in verse 19, it wasn't just like we were in slavery to sin and it was the static thing that never changed. He says this, he describes it this way. The old condition led to more and more lawlessness. In other words, you got good at it. You made progress in it. You graduated from one grade of sin to another grade of sin. You perfected your craft, so to speak. Nobody just stays there. That slavery goes deeper and deeper into bondage from, from one degree of lawlessness to another degree of lawlessness. And so understand the argument. Just as so now, just as that old state, there was a progressive aspect to it, so also in this new condition should lead to what? More and more sanctification. More and more sanctification. Just as one time, Christian, in your life you once grew in ungodliness, God's word expects us now to grow in godliness. Think of all the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe Christian growth. Seed to tree. Infant to full-grown adult. Immaturity to maturity. There's a progress that's supposed to happen. This is how grace, saving grace, works itself out in the Christian life. Progressive sanctification. Now, there are really bad versions of sanctification that describe the process as completely passive like this. What you need to do as a Christian, is let go and let God. Let go and let God. Just let God do it. You stop trying to do it. Just let go and let God. As though, the, as though Christian, and, Christian sanctification were this automatic thing that God just zaps you from heaven with saving grace and virtue and there's no effort on your part, no, no straining on your part. Just let go and let God. But notice that Paul is describing something in chapter 6 that we do. We present ourselves, we actively present ourselves to God as his obedient slaves. And the Bible describes that process as taking tremendous effort on our part. Okay, It's not passive. We're active. Jesus says it this way, strive to enter the narrow gate. That's Matthew 7. Paul says it this way later in Romans 12. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. It's an act of your will. Peter says it this way. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And so it's a really wrong conclusion 
with this indicative imperative relationship that because the indicatives are true, there's nothing for me to do. And you simply can't do that with Paul's teaching. This is what is true of us in Jesus Christ. That's the indicative. And then he calls us to the imperative. Here's how we respond. Present yourselves to God. If this is what God has done, if he's given us a new and obedient heart, don't serve sin any longer. Present yourselves to God, your new king. Serve your new king. In verses 20 through 23, we see Paul put these two slaveries in this concluding contrast to show us how different they are one from the other. We see there are different masters. One form of slavery, we serve sin. It is awful slavery. It is tyranny. In the other form of slavery, by grace, we become slaves of God. And that's what we were meant to be. We were meant to know and serve our God. So these slaveries, we have different masters. Notice also in verses 21 and 22, they have different fruit in, in the present In other words, how are they different in everyday life? Well, look at what he says in verse 21. He says, the fruit of our old slavery is shame. Christian, when you think about how you once lived, who in Christ is proud of those things? One of the dumbest things that we could say as Christians is is knowing what I know now, I wouldn't change anything about my life. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? There ought to be mountains and mountains of things that you are ashamed of. This is what he calls us to remember. That's what the old slavery was like. It wasn't fun. It wasn't, man, remember the good old days. It's, man, remember the things of which you are now ashamed. There's nothing good for you there. Don't go back there. Contrasted to the present fruit of the new slavery... He says in verse 22, the fruit we get now is sanctification. We get sanctification. We get get progressively conformed into the image of Jesus. We get holiness in this world. Real holiness. Progressive holiness. And then notice the different ends of the two forms of slavery. The old slavery leads to eternal death. In verse 21, but the new slavery leads to eternal life in verse 22. That's how serious the stakes are in this illustration. Eternal life on the one hand, eternal death on the other. These two forms of slavery couldn't be any different. They're diametrically opposed to one another. And finally, notice this, and and maybe most importantly... Notice that not only are the outcomes different, eternal life on the one hand, eternal death on the other, but notice that the means of obtaining the outcome is also different. Verse 23, Paul says, Sin pays wages, but God gives free gifts. Sin pays wages, but God gives free gifts through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as we begin to unpack the doctrine of sanctification and the new life in Jesus Christ, don't you ever believe that Christianity in any aspect is a wage paid? Don't you ever believe that? Sin pays wages. God gives gifts. Christianity is never something you earn. It is never something that you achieve. It is never the reward for human merit. Christianity is grace start to finish. Even your sanctification is by grace, which is why Paul says, thanks be to God. Christianity is the the achievement of no man, no woman, except the man, Christ Jesus. God's grace is freely given to all who trust in Jesus. Sin pays wages, but God gives gifts. That's the slavery metaphor in chapter 6. Now go into chapter 7, and isn't this interesting? We have to keep this side by side in God's word. On the one hand, we're slaves to God. On the other, we're married to Christ. We're married to Jesus. 
Notice in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul continues this theme of law. He's writing to those who know the law. And we've already said why. Chapter 6, verse 14, he just said Christians are not under law. Now he's unpacking. Here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that you're not obedient slaves anymore. I just mean you have a new king. Here he turns the corner. By the use of the slavery metaphor, Paul has clarified that he does not mean lawlessness. But in chapter 7, by use of the marriage metaphor, Paul clarifies that neither does he mean barrenness. Okay, I don't mean lawlessness, but I also don't mean barrenness. Verse 4 states the argument this way. Christians have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that's what it means to be no, no, no longer under the law. In, in Romans 6.14, it means that you have died to the law as a Christian through the body of Christ. Now remember what's new here. In chapter 6, he's already taught us that we died to sin. That's easy enough to understand. Sin's bad, always bad, nothing but bad. Died to sin, and we're thinking, man, that's good news. Here the argument progresses, and he tells us that we died to the law. This one's a little different because that law is God's law. That law is holy and righteous and good. And so in what sense can, we, can he say, not only are we dead to sin, a Christian is dead to the law? Why do we need to be dead to the law? That law is God's law. But he tells us in verse 4 that we died to the law through the death of Christ. Paul gives us an illustration of human marriage to unpack what he means here in verses 2 and 3. And his point in verses 2 and 3 is that the death of a spouse frees the surviving spouse to be remarried. In other words, that death of a spouse severs the legal bond, the law of marriage, the duties towards the surviving spouse. And it frees that surviving spouse to be remarried without the charge of adultery. That's, that's the illustration there. By this illustration of human marriage, Paul intends to show us that we were once joined to or married to the law. At one time, he envisions every human being apart from Jesus Christ as married to the law of God. And just as the woman was released from her old marriage by death, we have been released from our old bond to the law through the death of Christ, having died with him. So that's the argument. Notice again that when God releases us from our old condition, married to the law, he does not release us into autonomy. It's not not married to the law anymore. It's joined to another. Just like we saw in the, in the first illustration, it's not released from old slavery. It's joined to a new master. To be released from the old spouse is to be joined to a new spouse. And Paul names this new spouse in verse 4 as Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead. Again, this is a gospel indicative. This is how we have to learn to think about ourselves in Christ. I'm dead to the law. That old marriage has been dissolved. And now I am joined to another. I am married to Jesus Christ, the one who has been raised from the dead. But we come back to our question just a moment ago. We know why we need to die to sin. But why in the world do we need to die to the law? Why did we need to die to the law? Paul answers that question in verse 4 with three words. In order that. That's a purpose statement in God's word. It's a purpose statement. God did this in order that for the purpose of. And so if you were to ask Paul, why do we need to die to the law? Why do we need to be married to Christ? His answer would be 
so that we can bear fruit for God. He says it the same way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, a parallel text here. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. That's the purpose of dying to the law and being joined to another. It's to live to God, to bear fruit for God. But friends, that purpose statement in verse 4, it clarifies for us what the problem was in our old state, in our old condition. When we were married to the law. And so what we have is a contrast here. In one marriage, there was, there was barrenness. There was no fruit. That's your old marriage. Paul identifies the old marriage to the law with barrenness. And then the contrast is this. The new marriage to Christ is marked by for the purpose of fruitfulness. Alive to God. You have been married to Jesus so that you can bear fruit for God. Now that, that is the problem with the law. The, the problem with the law is not that it's bad. It has good standards, good statutes, holy commandments. It's God's law. Think of all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots of the law. And which one of those would we say, that's a bad commandment? Not one. They're from God. The law is holy and righteous and good. This is what he says later in the same chapter, chapter 7, verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem with our old marriage was not the law. It was that the law gave us commandments, but it gave us no power to obey those commandments. The com God's, God's commandments were given to us through the law, but the divine empowerment did not come with the law. Paul goes on later in chapter Seven, to illustrate our relation to the law outside of Christ. We, outside of Jesus, we know God says thou shalt, God says thou shalt not, but we have no power to obey those things outside of Jesus. He says it this way in Romans chapter 7, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Even when Israel, think about it, even when Israel received the law from God, the Torah, Israel did not automatically receive a new heart by which they could keep that law. They got the commandments, they got the righteous standards, but they didn't receive a new heart. God says it this way in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4, To this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And so the law gives us commandments, but it gives us no power to obey those commandments. And apart from Jesus, we are in this condition of slavery, of knowing the righteous standards of God and not being able to keep those righteous standards. And so apart from Jesus, you need to understand that you were married to the law. If you are not a Christian, you need to understand currently, presently, right now, you are married to the law. Christian, you used to be married to the law. And listen, it was a horrible marriage. Absolutely horrible marriage. And listen, the problem wasn't your spouse, the problem was you. You were the problem. The problem was found in our wicked heart, in our impotence, weakness to obey. The, the, our spouse was holy and righteous and good. But we didn't have the power to obey those holy and righteous and good commandments. This is what Paul calls us to remember in, in verse 5. He says, while we were living in our flesh, the old us, we were captive to sin under the law. Friends, this is why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, 
announces that God in Christ has acted, listen, apart from the law. And that needs to be one of the most glorious things in the world to you. God has done something in Christ apart from the law, apart from that old condition. Something besides just commandments of thou shalt and thou shalt not. Listen to how many times Paul says this in Romans. God has acted apart from the law. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, listen, apart from the law. Chapter 8, verse 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And so why did we need to be, why did we need to die to the law and be married to Jesus? It's because of the barrenness of our old condition. That barrenness had to be severed. That bond had to be severed. And that's exactly what Paul proclaims that God has done for us in Christ. Verse 6, but now, but now. That's one of the many pivots of grace in the New Testament. This is who we once were. But Paul says, but now we are released from the law. We're released from the law. Now context It can never mean that we don't have any commandments to obey. You missed the first metaphor. We're slaves to God. And it can never mean we're free from the law. We can live however we want. You missed the metaphor. He says this was for the purpose of bearing fruit for God. We're taken out of the old state. We're brought into the new. John Bunyan describes the transition this way. He, he, he points out the weakness of the law. John Bunyan says, the law says this, run John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Look at what God has done for us in Jesus. It's not just thou shalt and thou shalt not with no power to obey them. The gospel includes divine enablement, a new heart, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so Paul says this in verse 6. In Christ we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not the old way of the letter. Not just me and my own resources and God's commandments and run, John, run, the law commands. Not just that, but the new way of the Spirit. The old way was me trying to obey God and my own resources. The new way of the Spirit means fruitfulness to God. Fruitfulness of God. I mean, it it ought to be one of the most precious things to you that God's Word gives the Christian promises that relate to us not continuing in sin. God has given us the Spirit. It tells us in chapter 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The new way of the Spirit. God has done for us in Christ exactly what God promised Israel through His prophets. He's given us the Spirit He's moved us to obey his statutes. Listen to how he says it in Ezekiel 36. This is verse 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules promise made old testament promise kept in jesus christ new testament that's exactly what god has done for us new heart new spirit that moves us to obey the righteous standards of god and so by way of conclusion i want to mention two things this is summarizing romans 6 and where where we've gone so far in romans 7 Number one, I want you to see how robustly Paul refutes legalistic thinking. 
In other words, in chapter 6 and 7, he begins to deal with those who hope in the law. Chapter 7, verse 1, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And in these chapters, he shows us the barrenness of putting your hope in the law apart from Jesus Christ. All you have apart from Christ is the old way of the letter, the old way of the written code. And so understand the logic of Romans. Just like in chapters 3 and 4, Paul argued that the law cannot justify you apart from Jesus. In chapters 6 through 8, Paul argues that neither can the law sanctify you apart from Jesus. It can't fix your guilt problem and the penalty of your sin. And it can't fix your corruption problem either apart from Jesus. We are in comprehensive need of Jesus Christ. And so our only hope of obedience is a new heart and the new way of the Spirit. And this is exactly what God has done for us in Christ. Romans 8 verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Secondly, And it's interesting how this happens at the same time in these chapters. Notice how robustly Paul has refuted antinomian thinking. Not only legalistic thinking, but antinomian thinking. Those who assume that because God justifies us freely by his grace, we can continue in sin. And he's refuted that conclusion by showing us everyone who is justified freely... By the grace of God is given a new heart with new desires to obey a new master and a promise from God that they now begin to live a new and fruitful life to God. In other words, justification by faith alone is not this thing that happens in isolation from all the other graces of being in Christ Jesus. Those whom God justifies freely by his grace, he also joins them in a fruitful marriage to Jesus Christ with fruit that is both guaranteed and empowered by his Holy Spirit. Think about how important that doctrine is for a local church. That Jesus makes a real difference in your life. Think about that. This is the foundation of a credible profession of faith that someone has as they come into the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, what's the standards of entrance? It's not raise your hand if you intellectually ascend to these certain doctrines. Is is do you have saving faith in Jesus and has that faith made a difference in your life? It's a transformation of grace. This doctrine is the very foundation of that. Foundation of church membership and church discipline. It's the foundation of of having any success in discerning in this world those who belong to Christ and those who do not belong to Christ. Jesus makes a difference in your life. Paul has shown us in this passage how to contend both ways against the legalist and against the antinomian for true Christianity. And he summarizes in chapter 6 and thus far in chapter 7 the mindset that every one of us ought to have in Christ Jesus. And I want to close with this verse. This, This verse in Philippians sums up what Paul is getting at in these chapters 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. And I'll leave this with, our, with us as our meditation. Uh, may God give us this mind in Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this. For we, Christians, are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for the gospel today. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus. God, we thank you for those precious duns in your word. 
the precious things that you have once and for all accomplished for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would cause this glorious gospel to shape our thoughts, to shape our minds, to move our wills, Lord, to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. God, we pray that you would cause your word to bear fruit in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.